If you would please turn in your copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 13. Uh, Just a a brief comment I wanted to make from last week's message regarding Mark 10, verses 11 and 12. It reads there, so he said to them, speaking to his disciples, they'd gotten away into a house And he's speaking with them about what he had just told. He said, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Uh, Just to touch base on something that really I did not bring up. If you are someone who is divorced and remarried, what do you do? My counsel is to remain faithful to your current spouse. And demonstrate the enduring love of Christ with that husband or wife. Though you may have committed adultery in remarrying after a divorce. The step to take is repent from that act of adultery. And move on in obedience to Christ and his word from here forward. And please if you have any questions or would like more clarity. Please come and talk. Last Wednesday I had the privilege to have a wonderful discussion about points in last Sunday's message that needed clearer explanation. And I know sometimes that is the case. Please come and talk. I, I really appreciate that. It is a great step for being able to encourage each other, sharpen each other in the Word of God. And it's especially important for me. I need that. So uh, please, if there are things that aren't clear, let's talk about them and seek the Word of God to understand what they are. This morning, we're looking at two stories. And one might say, well, isn't there enough in the one? Why do you need to combine two this time? Well, if you look in all three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels, you will see these two stories, and you will see them in the same order in all three of them. And that's because there is a very clear comparison of who belongs to and who walks away from the kingdom of God. And certainly we could. We could focus on one or we could focus on the other. But this is, I think, a perfect time in our history to look at both of these. This message is absolutely as important to you and your life as it was to this man, to these families, to the disciples 2,000 years ago as they stood with Christ. This is a timeless comparison. This is a timeless message. So please bear with me as we jump into this And try to see what God would have us to understand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. O Lord. O King of creation. Our God we thank you for the privilege of being able to come and worship you this morning. And now as we open your word. uh, We are like these infant children Lord. We won't understand a bit of it. Unless your Holy Spirit grants us understanding. Lord please. Fill this time, this place with the spirit of Christ, with the spirit of understanding so that we would see you. We would know you. We would glorify you. We would see that you are worthy. Lord, help us to shed our own complacencies, our our own coverings of sin and come before Christ in repentance and, and humility. Please teach us, Lord. You know you know my many limitations so please speak to the hearts through your word with your spirit speak to mine and change us convict us lead us to Christ 
Amen. Verse 13, Then they brought little children to him, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Come as a child. But on this particular day, that does not mean you will get in. In fact, if you did come, you were likely to be rebuked while coming. You would have been rebuked while coming. Jesus is with his disciples. And if we remember the map that we've used several times in what is called the region of Perea. Jesus has been up to the far north of Israel around Capernaum which was along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Has worked his way down. Has come along the east side of the Jordan River south to where he's almost parallel with Jerusalem, but he's on the other side of the Jordan. And he has ministry there for a period of time. As Jesus is teaching and healing among the crowds, at some point, parents, in fact it appears from the use of these words, that these were likely the fathers, or perhaps some of the older siblings, were bringing these infants to Jesus. Mark and Matthew use the Greek word, which can mean an infant. But Luke clarifies it. He uses the word brephos. And that literally translates to an unborn baby, a newborn, or young infants. From the gist of the story, we know the little children that we're talking about here are at least young enough that they are being carried around. And Jesus takes them up in his arms and he holds them. And Matthew includes that Jesus laid hands on them and prayed for them. And before I started, I was looking around at, at all the infants in the arms of men and women in this church. We have the picture that Jesus is talking about right here among us. These infant children. And you see, blessings in that day of Christ from a rabbi was a great benefit. What Jesus was doing with these children would not have been an unusual sight. But even so, it was certainly not a priority that would take up much of a rabbi's time or concentration. First century Jewish life for the family definitely did not revolve around children at all like it does in much of our American culture now. Children were loved, but they also carried little status in all first century cultures. For an Orthodox Jew, children's time of importance comes, but not until the age of 12. So back on the ground with Jesus in Perea. There is a tension rising. There's a tension between his disciples and these people that are bringing these babies to Jesus. In fact, the disciples, it says, rebuked these zealous parents. Now, rebuke is a very strong word. It's in an intense form of the verb and it carries a lot of emotion. The same word describes Jesus when he was rebuking demons three different times in the book of Mark. It's when Jesus rebuked the storm on the sea. In chapter 4. It's when he rebuked Peter. In chapter 8. And when Jesus does rebuking. It is always the perfect response. But this time it's the disciples doing the rebuking. And it is far from perfect. In fact in verse 14. We, we read that Jesus saw it. And he was greatly displeased. And he said to them. Let the little children come to me. And do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. There is so much represented in a child. There is so much that is represented when you see these children in the arms of their parents. Jesus, it says, is greatly displeased. 
Some translate Jesus' response as he was angry. He was irate. He was outraged. Let them come, he insists, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. As has happened several times already in Jesus' ministry, the disciples just don't get it when it comes to the kingdom of God. For example, Mark chapter 8, earlier, verse 33. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. In Mark 9, verses 33 to 35, they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Mark 9, 38. Now Jesus answered him, saying, or excuse me, now John answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us, casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. And then in Luke chapter 18, there's an account of a blind man, and his name is Bartimaeus. Many of you will remember that story. It takes place in Mark 10 also, but I think Luke gives a better description here to help us see the point. Then it happened, as he was coming near Jericho, Jesus, that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. Then hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before and it is thought that likely these were the disciples going before, warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight, then followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. We love Jesus because he loves us. He loves blind people that are yelling and begging for help. He loves people that are serving him and honoring him, perhaps in ways different than we thought of. He, he loves the outcast. He loves the women who have been the prostitutes of the city. He loves the men who have been the tax collectors, the despised ones. And he not only loves them, he brings them in and they become his right-hand men. Jesus loves us. To the disciples, men, don't you get it? These precious infants represent the kind of hearts that own the kingdom of God. This is who the kingdom of God is for. This is who it is all about. Assuredly, says Jesus, or truly, truly, or listen up. I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Jesus gives the requirement for entry. Whoever, whoever, that's pretty broad, isn't it? That covers everyone, everywhere, 
at all times. Requirement for entry for everyone if they do not receive the kingdom. And when we talk about the kingdom, what are we talking about here? There are only two kingdoms. When it really comes down to it, there may be nations across this planet. But very soon, all of us will see and know there are only two kingdoms. The kingdom ruled by the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. From Ephesians 2. This kingdom is ruled by Satan. Versus the kingdom of God. This kingdom and its king are described in Daniel 7. Daniel 7 verse 13. And I kept looking in the night visions. This is Daniel speaking. And behold with the clouds of heaven. One like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, to Jesus Christ, our Messiah, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Two kingdoms. Which do you want to enter? You and I, you and I like infant babes, cannot scale the walls of the kingdom of God. We cannot wrestle our way in. It is impossible in any way to earn the right to be in this kingdom. We by no means deserve to be in this kingdom. In fact, it is an impossibility that anything we do will bring us entry into the kingdom of God. We may only receive entrance from the king when he calls us and with his offer we trust him and receive it. Let me say that again. We may only receive entrance from the king when he calls us with his offer and we trust him in receiving it. It is, as Jesus says, in the same way as a little child Trusting, dependent, without any merit, having achieved nothing of value or virtue, said one writer. One of the study Bibles says, true believers have nothing to bring and everything to receive. Helpless, vulnerable, powerless. Ones who have no credit, no clout, no claims, writes James Edwards. Luke in chapter 18 says, For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Such as these. It does not simply say the kingdom of God belongs to these. It doesn't simply belong to children. It belongs to all that come to Christ in humility, dependence, and trust. With no self-status, no self-confidence, no self-merit. Like an infant child. Otherwise, Jesus declares, you will by no means enter. You will by no means enter. The demand that a man becomes as a little child, wrote William Lane, calls for a fresh realization that he is utterly helpless in his relationship to the kingdom. The kingdom is that which God gives and that which a man receives. The kingdom may be entered only by one who knows he is helpless and small without claim or merit. The unchildlike piety of achievement 
must be abandoned in the recognition that to receive the kingdom is to allow oneself to be given it. Jesus is emphatic that the man who does not receive the kingdom now simply and naturally as the children received him will not enter into it when it is finally established in the consummation. End quote. And Jesus took them. He took those little helpless babies up in his arms and he laid his hands on them and he blessed them. And they are rewarded by Christ's blessing. Christ's blessing. Jesus openly expresses deep affection for these young children. He takes them up in his arms and he blesses them. He is, as we say today, loving on these children. And we kind of assume that is the appropriate and common response to little ones. But listen to this excerpt from a papyrus dated on June 17th, the year 1 B.C. It shows what the common cultural attitude was toward children at the time of Christ. This is written by a husband to his pregnant wife who he thinks may have already had their baby. And he wrote, If it was a male child, let it live. If it was a female, cast it out. Very common. That was common, but Jesus is not common. He presented a whole new way of life in practically every facet of living. This story is, as so many have been in this gospel about the hearts of God's children. Very young, infants, to very old. And as you see, this story is not about instituting infant baptism, nor is it about children being a part of the covenant family. It is the illustration of the heart necessary to enter the kingdom of God. Now, it can appear, as you read through this, to be one of those really wholesome scenes in a green flowering pasture filled with children and family standing around and, and maybe you hear a flute playing in the background and, and butterflies flitting around. They are enjoying each other and the opportunity to meet Jesus. And too often we may finish up these four verses with the idea that yes, we should love Jesus like or we should love children like Jesus did. Be good to your little ones and make them a priority like Christ did. Yes, Jesus really did love children. And we should too. But that is hardly the point Jesus is making. If I led you that, to that impression, I would have failed miserably. In fact, Jesus takes a very sharp and edgy turn at verse 15. Look at verse 15. Do you hear what he is saying? Look again and let the weight of this sink in. If you do not come to Jesus with the same heart and mind as an insignificant, weak, dependent, desperate, but trusting infant, you will be shut out of heaven. On that day, there are no variety of destinations you can choose from like a travel agency for a vacation spot. If you are shut out of the kingdom of God, you will be in, as Luke describes, that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but yourselves being thrown out. Paul describes that time when these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Now someone 
maybe muttering under their breath. Leave it to an old preacher like him to take a story about Jesus loving babies and turn it into fire and brimstone. But I really didn't do that. Jesus did. He said, if you are not like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And if you don't enter it in, into the kingdom of God, you are cast into the lake of fire forever. It's as serious a warning as Jesus ever gave during his 30-some years on earth. I just want you to see how weighty Jesus' words are. And this becomes even more significant now as we look down the road and see who comes running up to Jesus. Look who's coming up to catch up with him. You see, the account of the little children is followed by the introduction of a well-positioned young man. And it is no accident. Jesus said to his disciples, You must come as a child or you will depart in grief. Verse 17, Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him. Now before we look at the question, let's look at this passionate young man. Who is he? He is seeking for good. He is seeking for good. And one came. Well, who is this one? Mark says in verse 22 that he was very rich. Most of your translations read that he had great possessions. One of them even says he was a land baron, saying he owned much property. The Matthew relates that he was young. And Luke indicates that he was a ruler. Possibly a ruler of a local synagogue. See, this would have been an impressive accomplishment for a young man. Such a position was usually held by an elder in the community. Someone who had put in his time over many years and had proved himself. But this fellow had made his mark on the religious establishment at an early age. Put all those attributes together and you get the title of this man. The rich young ruler. Who literally bursts onto the scene with Jesus and the disciples. And he appears to be earnestly seeking. He's committed. He's passionate. And yet he's still unsettled, isn't he? The man came running. Now in order to run... If you were one of those dudes in those days in that kind of apparel, you would have had to gather up your long dignified robe, which would have bared your lower legs, all of which would have been very inappropriate for a ruler of the synagogue. Yet this young man doesn't seem to have cared in the least. He has found his opportunity and is desperate to get to Jesus as soon as he can. He falls to his knees. And what does this tell you? You see this young man running up. Dignified in apparel, but undignified in his approach. And he falls on his knees. He demonstrates humility. Even a submissive spirit in a way. An honor to Jesus. And then he gets to the point and he asks Jesus. Now he's not coming up just for uh, like a photo op kind of an encounter. He doesn't desire an autograph. He's not even looking for free food. Which so many of the people were coming to find Jesus for in those days. No, he has a question on his mind. A serious question. In fact, it's the most serious question a man can ever utter. Good teacher. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Depends on who is good. And here we see the good standard. Not the gold standard. The good standard. Matthew 19 rounds out the request a little bit more and it says, Good teacher, 
What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? What shall I do? What action can I take to ensure that I will get eternal life? Now this question is perhaps the most common query that anyone asks of a religion. Any religion. What do I have to do? How can I escape this fear of mortality? Hebrews chapter 2 speaks of mankind and says, those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This young ruler, like most men and women, if they have the courage and wisdom to stop for a moment and think, they want an escape from the inescapable. How do I come out from under the sentence of death that holds all men? The writer of Hebrews wrote also, it is appointed for men to die once. Death is certain and it is final. Although we try to ignore death's incessant shadow, it looms without partiality over every man and woman awaiting its assigned hour. Although we try to ignore death's incessant shadow, it looms without partiality over every man and woman awaiting its assigned hour. Without Christ, without Christ only a very ignorant or foolish man claims to have no fear of death. And I have had many conversations with such men. But this young ruler is not one of them. He is no fool regarding death. He desperately wants eternal life. And I don't think he simply wants prolonged life. More years. No, he desires a life in the kingdom of God as best he understands it. He wants a full life. And certainly, he's come to the right place. Perhaps he's heard of Jesus' statement to the Pharisees. When Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus testified of his authority to give life when he said to Thomas and the disciples in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except me, through me. And when he prayed to his Father, Jesus said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that, you, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then even to those religious leaders who were at that very moment plotting to kill Him, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has an everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. Jesus is the right place. And it is essentially a smart question. So here, here we have what would often be thought of as a prime candidate for salvation. He's seeking eternal life. He is eager. He is successful. He appears to be a clean cut, do the right things, even a do the hard things kind of a guy. What prayer will Jesus have him pray to get across the line from death into life, from hell to heaven? What kind of spiritual decision will transform this troubled but eager potential believer into a new creation? He's close, isn't he? Isn't he? I mean, obviously, he is close in proximity to the giver of life. Jesus is the expert 
What does he do? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. You see, there is an infinitely small population of good. Think about this. Whoa, isn't this kind of a picky issue? Don't discourage this guy. He was just sort of starting a conversation, sort of a respectable way to say, Hi, Jesus, good teacher. You need to look at his heart, which obviously wants to go to heaven. Isn't the explanation of good sort of a technicality? That is how we would often think, but it is not at all. It was a young man who came to Christ, and he used the term good. So what does Jesus do? As so often he does, and study Jesus to learn this, as he so often does, he asks a question. Over and over again we see him asking questions. Nicodemus, the woman at the well. Zacchaeus, he's he's always asking questions. The question is asked, but notice, Jesus doesn't wait for an answer. Of course, we know that Jesus knows why the young man called him good, even if we might not be so sure of it. But it's a very sad commentary. It's a sad commentary both on our contemporary culture and the reality of the word good. That is by far the most common self-evaluation I have ever heard from someone on the streets. When offering to talk with them about their souls or about God or about eternity, over and over again I'll hear, no thanks, I'm good. Or maybe just, I'm good. But this is a question for the young man to answer. Answer for himself. He doesn't need to explain it to Jesus. Do you understand, young man, what you are saying when you call me or someone else or yourself good? And realize there is only one good, and that is God. Let me explain, says Jesus. And here we have the requirements of good. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. All of these, all of these except defraud, which is much like stealing, it's the idea of failing to pay an earned wage. All of these are taken specifically from the moral law of God. They are the second portion of the Ten Commandments. And they comprise what Jesus compressed into the second great commandment. Do you remember what that was? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what they are compressed and they comprise that of what Jesus says. Now Jesus, the author of the law, puts the law to one of its intended functions. It is the exact opposite purpose for which the young man had attempted to use the law. You see, the young ruler thinks the law is an indicator that he is pretty close to eternal life. Here is a young man who appears to be on the brink of salvation ready to take action, and Jesus goes to the law of God. Now that's not, a real pop, that's not real popular in today's evangelism strategies. But Jesus isn't about popular, and I'm not even sure he is into evangelism strategies. Paul tells Timothy, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Here Jesus uses the law lawfully and masterfully, masterfully to help this man see the truth. And, and Put on your thinking caps here. 
Because we're going to dig a little deep onto the law for just a brief moment. There are three functions of the law of God. The civil function. The civil function is a restraining use of the law. It involves a threat of natural, social, or civil consequences in breaking the law. That means like getting a fine or a prison sentence or even the death penalty for breaking the law. The civil function of the law restrains outward sin, but it does not renew or reform the heart of the sinner. Romans 13 verse 3, Paul wrote, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, then you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on, whom he practice, on, on him who practices evil. So the first is a civil function which restrains evil. The second function is the didactic function. And it's what we call the normative use of the law. In this function, the law provides the rule or the standard for the life of the believer. In Christ, we walk in obedience to the law of God. Not to earn salvation, but to demonstrate our love for Him. The moral law of God shows us how, by the power of the Spirit of God, to demonstrate that love for Christ. Jesus told His disciples, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is He who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The didactic function is what guides the Christian in how to live his life for the glory of God, to demonstrate his love to God. Now the third function of the law here is what Jesus perfectly uses with this young man. It is called the pedagogical function. It is what Paul was talking about when he wrote this to the Galatians. He said, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Here the law is intended to drive people to see their need of a Savior. Someone to rescue them from sin. To drive them to Jesus Christ for salvation. You see, the law can be overwhelming. But that is not the fear. I hope that the law does overwhelm because a man does not realize his desperate need for a Savior until he sees he is hopelessly and forever lost in sin, condemned to death. It drives people because it exposes who they are. It shows them they are sinners and that is what Christ came to save us. Yet at this point, looking at this account, the young man does not budge from his performance-based confidence. Listen to his response. And he answered and said to Jesus, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. He's professing to be good. I have performed at the level you are requiring. Really? While it sounds pretty arrogant, there was another man in Scripture who once sounded very similar. He wrote, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. Two verses later he said, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Who was that man? It was Paul, wasn't it? That was Paul. Paul had been at the top of the religious performance chart before he was saved by Jesus Christ. Perhaps this young man was right behind him in obedience to the law. Outwardly this young 
ruler excelled, particularly on the person-to-person laws of God. But, as Jesus clearly declared, time after time in his teaching and even in his rebukes, righteousness before God is a matter of the heart, not the performance stats. Righteousness of God is a matter of the heart, not the performance stats. Jesus had already taught that if the heart lusted after a woman, though it was not seen on the outside, it was an act of adultery in the eyes of God. And when you hate someone, you are murdering that person in your heart. There is no cover-up cover up before God. All things, Hebrews 4, lie naked and open before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. All things are naked and open before the eyes of God. That is true, no matter how good you look on the outside. But even with this young man's brazen self-righteousness, his creator, Jesus Christ, who knew every sin lurking in that man's dark heart, says in verse 21, he looked at him. He loved him. And he said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Take up your cross And follow me. The man is confronted with good. This is not a quick moment between Jesus and this young man. It really gives the idea that Jesus looked at him intently, carefully. And he had true compassion on this young man. He was not put off by him. He knew what was in his heart. And yet he looked at him with love. So far in their conversation, Jesus had graciously established that there is truly only one who is good, and that is God. And he brought out the good standard of sinlessness, using the perfect law of God to show the man that he was not good, that he is a sinner. But at each of these, the young man did not appear to have batted an eye. At this stage of life, the rich young ruler had succeeded in just about everything. He had need of nothing. He seems to be either still waiting for Jesus to tell him that holiest of deeds he can perform to gain eternal life, or else he is waiting for Jesus to realize that he is already worthy of eternal life. So Jesus in love goes deeper. And he exposes the heart of the young man to the young man. In Matthew 19, he says, If you want to be perfect, you lack one thing. Sell whatever you have. That's total relinquishment. All is gone. All is given up. Give to the poor. Totally giving. All is now someone else's. Take up the cross. Lose your life. And follow me. The opportunity to gain life. All spoken there. But verse 22 says, He was sad at this word and went away sorrowful. As with all men, he failed at good. You and I and everyone in here fail at good. And that is what's required. He leaves Christ in sorrow, in sadness. Then the NIV says his face fell. His sorrow was, was obvious on the outside. He is, he is full of grieving. And he follows the idol, leaving his creator. For he had great possessions. 
He follows the idol, leaving his creator. For he was one who owned much property. He followed the idol and leaving his creator. For he was very rich. The definition of an idol is anything that replaces the preeminence of God in your life. Anything that pre- replaces the preeminence of God in your life. What is that to you? Is it your status at work? Your success at raising a family? Your hobby? Your pastime? Your, your body? Your status in church? Your voice? Your strength? Your pet? Your music? Your sport? Your long-term security? What is it that seems to creep in and overshadow the preeminence of God in our lives? You see, the power of an idol, the power of an idol is such that it can turn a man or a woman away from the one true God who is the spring of living water. An idol can compel you to forfeit the greatest treasures of eternity. Your idol can suck you into blindly following it wherever it leads. Because the subtlety of an idol is so inconspicuous that throughout life, you would swear that, well, it's only a hobby. Well, that, that's just my inclination. It's, it's a sporadic desire. Well, it's, it's a besetting sin. It's an, it's an acquired skill. It's a necessary means of provision. Well, it's, it, it's, it's just a person that means a lot to me. It's an emotional need. Or on and on and on. Beware. Beware. An idol doesn't care what you call it. Nor does the devil that pulls its strings to keep you from Jesus Christ. For the destruction of an idol, ultimately it will kill you for eternity. The destruction of an idol will kill you for eternity. This young rich ruler went away devastated. And in the end, it wasn't that he couldn't sell all his stuff or give it away to the poor or that he wouldn't make a career change to follow Jesus The one thing he lacked, the one thing he lacked was the very first commandment of the moral law of God. You shall have no other gods before me. He did not love Jesus Christ. Jesus gave the young man one command, and this he refused to to obey. Again, Jesus' words are, He who has my commandment and keeps them, it is he who loves me. The man left in sorrow, much like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought the blessing diligently with tears. The young man did not love Jesus with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he walked away from the pearl of great price and followed the dung of his success. That's what it amounts to. The wealthy, the wealth, excuse me, the wealth and authority of the young man proved to be a far greater barrier from entering eternity than the simplicity, helplessness, and humility of the infant children. Edwards said this, How profoundly ironic is the kingdom of God. The children in the former story who possess nothing are not told that they lack anything. But rather the kingdom of God is theirs. Yet this man who possesses everything still lacks something. Only when he sells all he has, only when he becomes like a vulnerable child, will he possess 
everything. John wrote, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing in the way and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Paul, as I mentioned earlier, was in a very similar position to this young man. But he got it right. Let me read what Paul came to realize from Philippians chapter 3. Well, what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Do you hear that, men and women? We are coming to a point where this kind of claim can be ours. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And let me clarify. What is thrown to the dogs that is refuge that is dung. That I may gain Christ. That I may gain Christ. And be found in Him. Not having my own righteousness which is from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. That I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection. And the fellowship of His sufferings. Being conformed to His death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the account in your sovereignty and your providence. You met with these families and then at the perfect time you have this young man run up to you. And we see so much in these two lives, in these two stories. Lord, we are torn. Many of us in here have have been like that, that rich young ruler. We've been pretty clean cut. We've been pretty much do the right thing kind of people. Lord, may we not miss the kingdom of God. May we be like the infants, like the children that trust you, that look to you, that have no self-importance. Like Paul, who did, he looks back on what he's accomplished and said, what a waste that was. But now I have Christ. Lord, I pray that each man and woman in here will have you. They will seek you and follow you. Lord, give us eyes to see dung as it is. And see the wealth and the joy and the eternity of Christ. For you are worthy. In your name we pray. Amen.